welcome to Tisky Sour. I'm Ash Sarka, still covering for Michael Walker, who will be back on Monday. And tonight I'm joined by Moya Lothian-McLean. Moya, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And tonight we will be discussing Wayne Cousins' having pleaded guilty to the murder of Sarah Everard, the government's latest plans for test, trace and isolate, a Labour MP comparing Starmer to a certain leading football manager, and the Tory who is refusing to watch the Euros final because of BLM. As always, we want to know what you think, so do let us know your thoughts by tweeting on the hashtag TiskySour, and if you're new, hit that subscribe button. Wayne Cousins today pleaded guilty to the murder of Sarah Everard, in addition to the two previous guilty pleas to kidnap and rape. Cousins was, at the time, a serving diplomatic protection officer with the Metropolitan Police, and he abducted Everard less than a mile from her flat in Brixton. And today, details were made public for the first time regarding the sequence of events that led up to Sarah's death and Cousins' arrest. It transpires that Cousins had been making preparations for days in the lead up to Sarah's abduction on May the 3rd. Three days earlier, Cousins, a married father of two who lived in Kent, had hired a car online and used Amazon to purchase a carpet protector in order to cover up any forensic evidence in the vehicle. Then on March 4th, this is after the abduction, rape and murder, Cousins used his prearranged time off work to try and cover up his crime and completely dispose of Sarah's body. I'm going to spare you the details of that, but if you do want to know more, the Times has a thorough account. Then on March the 5th, Cousins reported to work, i.e. the Metropolitan Police, that he was suffering with stress. At 2pm that day, Cousins purchased two green rubble bags at B&Q in Dover. And on Saturday, March the 6th, he used Amazon to order a 2 by 2 meter tarpaulin and a bungee cargo net. That same day, he emailed his Met supervisor to say that he no longer wanted to carry a firearm. And over the course of these days, he repeatedly returned to the crime scene. Then on March the 9th, Cousins was arrested at his home in Deal at 7.50 p.m. And it is alleged that he may have become aware that his home was being watched by police because he wiped his phone off all data at 11 minutes past seven and threw a memory card or a SIM card out of the window. And we are going to talk about the institutional failures on the part of the Met, but this is the aspect of the case that I think is also worth discussing. Cousins did not know Everard, who was a 33-year-old marketing manager, and police believe he was trawling for a victim when he spotted her a few minutes later on the A205 South Circular, a busy road and popular pedestrian route between Clapham and Brixton. It was the height of the coronavirus lockdown, and police were questioning people who were out. Only Cousins knows whether he used an excuse to get Everard into his car or whether he forced her inside. However, police sources suspect he initially showed his warrant card to give the false impression he could be trusted. It took three minutes to execute his plan. Obviously, this case presents huge problems to the Met from the perspective of trust, because if a serving police officer could abuse his authority in order to kidnap rape and murder a woman, how is anybody supposed to trust us to trust an officer in similar circumstances? Um, Moya, cases like this are obviously very rare, but violence against women, obviously it isn't. But there is a credible chance that Cousins' job as a police officer, it wasn't incidental to the crime. It may have been central to abducting Sarah from what most of us would consider a fairly safe route home. Do you think that this will perhaps precipitate a wider breakdown of trust between women and police forces? Is this a crisis that the Met have to put some effort into addressing? I I think so. I think firstly because it struck such a um, symbolic image in the minds of women. We've talked about this a lot in elsewhere but the idea that you know he could have used his warrant card and he was a serving police officer the people who we are told are meant to protect and keep us safe even if the reality doesn't actually add up to that and I think also what will stick in people's minds is the aftermath again when the 
bringing up the vigil at Clapham Common that happened, uh, where a lot of women gathered to mourn Sarah and were attacked by the Metropolitan Police. And maybe those things individually would be something that the Met were able to, to paper over as they have done in the past. But I think those two things together, those two very different seeming incidences of violence from the institutional and the individual coming together, she paints a whole picture of you know, institutional misogyny within the Met, but also individual misogyny and individual violence that is very hard for them to escape from. And I think has destroyed a tr lot of trust for women in them. My mother, at least, who is not someone you'd expect to be cussing for the uh, abolition of the police, was certainly texting me in the aftermath of this after Wayne Cousins' arrest saying, like, how on earth could we trust these people? How dare they, essentially? So it has cut through. I mean, I think it, I think you're right. It has an enormous amount of cut through. And the thing you said about your mum really resonated with me because my mum was sort of horrified because what's the thing that you tell your daughter when she's growing up, which is you're in trouble, call the police, go to a police officer. And for that, I think, um, you know, very deep, uh, you know, principle and instruction. That's how you tell your children to stay safe for that trust to be broken. I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Um, but like I said, we will be getting into this question of possible institutional failings on the part of the police shortly. But this is what Cressida Dick had to say outside the Old Bailey today. My thoughts and those of everyone in the Met Police are with Sarah's loved ones. It's not possible for any of us to begin to imagine what they have been going through. I was able to speak to them earlier today and say again how very sorry I am for their loss and for their pain and their suffering. All of us in the Met are sickened, angered and devastated by this man's crimes. They are dreadful. And everyone in policing feels betrayed. I have absolutely no doubt that pretty much everyone in the Metropolitan Police, in police forces up and down the country, do feel horrified and sickened by Wayne Cousins's crimes. And I imagine when you share a profession with somebody who's committed such an act that you would feel that on a very personal and visceral level. I've got no doubt about that. But I think there was something about that phrasing of everyone in policing feels betrayed that left something of a bad taste in my mouth. Because obviously the betrayal fundamentally is to Sarah Everard, her family and her loved ones. And then there is a betrayal of public trust because this is a man who was a serving diplomatic protection officer who was meant to be uh, on the side of justice, who's meant to protect people from violence. This is regardless of whether or not you think uh, the police's structural role is actually to do that. And there is, there is a betrayal of public trust in this. It is not a betrayal of the police's trust. But another thing that I would like to add to this is that, of course, there is a difference between the reaction of people as individuals and the police as an institution. So although Wayne Cousins' guilty plea does put to, to bed the question of his own culpability, there are still very serious questions about whether the police force he served with did their due diligence. So the Independent Office for Police Conduct has said that 12 officers will be investigated over the case of Sarah Everard's killer. It has served a total of 12 gross misconduct or misconduct notices on police officers from several forces as they continue to investigate matters linked to the conduct of PC Cousins. And these investigations relate to a number of different matters, and I'm going to go through most of them now. First relates to three separate claims cousins having committed acts of indecent exposure before the murder of Sarah Everard. There was an allegation reported to Kent Police in 2015, and they will now face an investigation into whether they investigated it properly. Separately to that, the IOPC have said that they are also investigating allegations that the Met did not properly investigate two allegations of indecent exposure just days before he attacked Sarah Everard. These took place in London in 2021. Then, 
As well as that, there's an investigation into how Wayne Cousins sustained head injuries while he was in custody on the 10th and the 12th of March. By then, he had been arrested on suspicion of murdering Miss Everard. The investigation is said to be nearing its close with the police being treated as witnesses. In addition to that, the IOPC is looking into allegations that a probationary police constable in the Met, who was also involved in the search for Sarah, shared an inappropriate graphic with colleagues on social media. Three officers have been served with gross misconduct notices. And in addition to that, an investigation has also been launched into allegations that officers from a number of forces breached professional standards while sharing information linked to Cousins' prosecutions by using a messaging app. Moya, obviously there's a lot to get into here. There's the indecent exposure, there's the sharing of an inappropriate graphic, there's the uh, sharing of information, and there's also the head injuries. What the hell is going on with the police? I think what's going on with the police is what's been going on with the police since their formation. Uh, They're an institution that is built upon um, enacting the state's will, which is often violence. And as time has gone on, uh, more and more, they recruit people who are amenable to that. So when you see the culture that has been built up over, you know, what, let's say that over the 20th century in particular, over the 20th century, we look at police corruption, which was very particularly prevalent in the 1970s, 1980s. Uh, we look at the institutional racism that's taken place and the institutional misogyny. And all of this adds up to a culture where police officers are not protecting the people they're meant to. They're not there to serve us. They're there to serve the state. And often uh, we're at odds with the state. And the way that misogyny has taken root um, and gender-based violence has taken root in the police is really something to see. We hear a lot of reports about this. I think Wayne Cousins is just one example. So we had that uh, terrible incident of when um, Nicole uh, Smallman and Bieber Henry were murdered and a... or yeah, murdered. Um, and a police officer uh, has been, um, I think he's being investigated because he was sharing pictures of their bodies uh, when where they lay, which is just disgusting. But you also have the report by Channel 4 recently, which found I think it's one woman a week is coming forward and accusing their police officer partner of domestic abuse. So it, adding all this up, there is a culture of, of violence that I think exists in general, but it breaks down into different forms of violence. So we have violence against, say, protesters, um, violence against people of colour, which, you know, would be racist violence. Then we have this gender-based violence, but it all adds up to violence. And I think that is because it is a state-sponsored violence. Ultimately, these people are equipped with the knowledge that, in a way, they are above the law. They get protected. Their own do get protected. There was the recent investigation into the Daniel Morgan murder, um, where Cressida Dick denied any sorts of police corruption, despite so much evidence to the contrary um, about the investigation of this murder of this private detective that has been the most investigated murder in history. And still, even though they thought they, ha- they had the people that they think have done it and they had them registered on trial and it just collapsed because uh, police evidence was just not there or had been tampered with or had been disappeared. Uh, so you, you look at this, police will always protect their own. And I think there's a desensitization within the force to this. Um, and that's an institutional thing. I, you know, I, I talked today, I think, on social media about uh, policing as an institution. And uh, somebody said to me, that is unfair. You know, we hire a lot of good people. And it's like, well, yes, but good people in a bad system add up. You know, that adds up to becoming institutionalized. And it adds up to lots of people just doing the will of a bad system. We talked about the bad apples theory. There's no such thing as a bad apple when the whole barrel is rotten. And that's the problem. You can't change this from the inside and the entire structure needs to be taken down. I mean, that kind of leads on to a thing which I wanted you to elaborate on maybe a little bit more, which is this matter of closing ranks. So you've got these three incidences of indecent exposure. Uh, We know that at least one of them was reported to Kent Police. Uh, The other two incidences in February may have been reported to the police. So what is it? Obviously, we can't speculate too much on what stopped these investigations from being taken forward in the case of Wayne Cousins. But what is it about the culture around policing that this wasn't taken seriously? Is it the nature of the crime that indecent exposure is seen as something kind of silly or trivial? Or is it possibly that it involved a police officer? So the instinct was to close ranks, shut it down, not take it any further. I think it could be a bit of both, to be honest. But I also think that this is not something that is 
specific to policing. Closing ranks is something we see in every single profession. The problem is when it takes place in policing and when the, the, the people who are meant to police the police, as it were, such as the IOPC, are not doing a job that I think is good enough, that's when it becomes something that lifts into something actively dangerous. So, you know, we see closing ranks in, for example, politics all the time. That's, that's why Boris Johnson is still prime minister. People close rank constantly. They will always protect their own, as we talked about. But when it happens in an institution like the police who are entrusted with so much power and who the, the, the Tory government want to entrust with even more, that's when it becomes something actively harmful, dangerous. I, I would even call it, you know, abuse um, in a sense. So I don't I don't think it's specific to the police, that's the problem. But I think because of the powers the police are equipped with, that's when it becomes so harmful. And that's what we have to look at. How is there any way of actually modifying those powers? Or is it that we should be defunding or abolishing that system altogether? Um, because it's it's not worked from inception the way it's meant to. I, I people when the police were formed, there's this thing called the, I think it's the policing codes. It's the codes that, I can't remember the exact name, but it's the codes that Robert Peel, who formed the police and was an <laughs> awful person, and also the father of modern conservatism, add those two together. Um, <laughs> when they formed the police, when he formed the police, he came up with these codes, which you're meant to adhere to. And when you read the codes in isolation, it seems so straightforward. It's like, of course, of course, that's what a police person should do. Police person, amazing. Police officer should be adhering to. Um but that's never actually been in practice. The codes, the codes, as far as I've seen, they've never been practiced the way they've been written out. And that's the problem with the theory of policing versus the hard reality of policing, which is they are there to enforce the will of the state rather than protect the public who belong to that state. Like I said, the Wayne Cousins guilty plea does draw to a close the question of his culpability. You can now legally say that he raped, abducted and murdered Sarah Everard and hopefully that closure without having to go to a full adversarial trial will bring some measure of peace to her family and her loved ones. But these very important questions around police, did they do everything they could? Did they do their due diligence? And what was the investigation like? They still loom large over the Metropolitan Police and the Kent Police Force as well. It looks like the government will be going full steam ahead for the July 19th unlocking. And that means that social distancing measures will be lifted, along with mask mandates and limits on the number of people who can gather indoors. But the number of new coronavirus infections continues to rise. On Wednesday's show, my colleague Aaron Bassani told you about how it's estimated 2 million people could contract COVID-19 this summer. And even though the link between case numbers and hospitalizations has been significantly weakened, it hasn't been broken. And there's obviously still the risk of long COVID. And millions more would be forced into self-isolation before the double jab rule change comes into effect from August the 16th. So, Instead of dealing with these case numbers by suppressing community transmission, so having a really aggressive test, trace and isolate system, containing outbreaks where they happen locally, having lockdown measures to bring down the numbers overall, it looks like the government may simply just disincentivize getting a test and tell fewer people to self-isolate as well. So right now, all adults in the UK are entitled to two free lateral flow tests a week. And these lateral flow tests are the rapid response ones. You swab the inside of your mouth, you wait 30 minutes and you get your results. And these lateral flow tests can successfully identify the virus in about 72% of people who show symptoms. And it goes down to 58% of people who don't show symptoms, but do have the virus. And so the idea is these tests are less sensitive, yes, but you confirm your positive result with the much more sensitive PCR test. And because they're quick, you do them all the time. Ultimately, you are going to catch um, a significant number of people uh, who have the virus before they go on to infect too many other people. Now, this scheme of free lateral flow tests is only scheduled to run up until the end of July, and it will continue at least until the end of August. But it has been reported that the Department of Health and Social Care is considering the introduction of charges, though it will remain free for use in schools. So, Moya, these lateral flow tests were key 
to Matt Hancock's RIP, uh, much vaunted Operation Moonshot. What what is the case for scrapping the scheme and why now? Operation Moonshot. There's a name I haven't heard in a while. Um, that's a season one. <laughs> there, that's a throwback. Uh, so this this lateral flow test. I mean, lateral flow tests. Um, as we talked about, as you talked about earlier, are not actually the best way to detect COVID. But that's not why uh, Sajid Javid is now, I think, trying thinking about bringing in a charge. So basically, if less people are doing lateral flow tests, you've got less people testing potentially positive um, and you're giving out less. So the numbers of people testing positive are going to go down, aren't they? Because no one's going to pay. And of course, what this is just going to mean is that we're going to have lots of case numbers that go completely missed. So we're not going to get accurate reads on actually what's happening with COVID-19 and more people are likely to go back to work and not self-isolate, etc. And this would be all very well and good if the vaccination program had been fully rolled out, but it's not been and they're already pushing back a full opening um but there are problems with the lateral flow tests that i think from the start they shouldn't have been made the cornerstone of the government's um operation moonshot or whatever or the track and trace they they for some reason they form well i know the reason is because they're easy to get hold of um but i've this might sound too conspiracy theorist but because they don't give a very accurate response and i think the fda recently called the type of lateral flow we use which is innova um they said they should be binned and that they're basically useless. Uh, they formed this cornerstone of our track and trace policy. And I'm just, I'm just wor- wondering if perhaps the government knew in the first place that they weren't very accurate because that also would bring testing numbers down, positive test numbers down from the get-go rather than the PCRs, which are slightly more cumbersome, but actually do give you an accurate result. I guess it seemed to me that the reason why the government went so hard on these lateral flow tests was one is that there is a uh, disposition towards novelty in the government. So rather than looking at what other countries have done successfully, so looking at the rollout of mass testing that you saw in East Asian countries, which uh, predominantly relied on uh, the PCR tests, instead it was, we're going to do this brand new thing, which no one's ever done before. And you ended up with a less accurate, much less sensitive test. And then I think the second thing was, you know, this lack of infrastructure. So we didn't have a great pandemic preparedness or we had the wrong kinds of preparedness in this country which sort of um focused on how could you uh crisis manage something rather than build up your capacity to deal with it um and that also meant that you just didn't have this pre-existing infrastructure the way you did have in those east asian countries which dealt with sars so you kind of had to have this kind of you know cheapo bin it test (laughs) rather than an actual good one I also think that that you can't see uh, this floated change to charges for the lateral flow scheme separately from the government going, you know, absolutely hell for leather for ending all restrictions by July the 19th, because, of course, this comes in a context where there have been discussions around changing the test, trace and isolate system. It has been reported today that the government is considering making the NHS COVID app less sensitive And this comes after a 60% rise in pings telling people to self-isolate in a single week. And the app works by using Bluetooth signals, which can detect your proximity to other people. So if you have been within two meters of somebody for more than 15 minutes, who then records a positive coronavirus test result, then you will be told to self-isolate. So why have the pings increased so much? Well, one is that case numbers are going up. So obviously the pings go up as well. There has been a 34.9% increase in positive cases in the last seven days. And that also comes simultaneously when there has been a lot more mixing. So people going back to work, people socializing indoors more, uh, people going to watch the blessed England team. It means that you just have a lot more case numbers overall. Large numbers are being told to self-isolate. What are the conservatives prioritizing? You would think that it would be something like sick pay or improving universal credit systems so that people, when they have to stay at home and they can't go to work, have the kind of financial support they need. Is that what they're focusing on? It's their summer holidays. This was in The Times today. Several MPs told The Times that they knew of colleagues who had deleted or disabled the app. Colleagues are starting to work out they're highly likely to get pinged as things open up and cases rise, one MP said, adding that some were going into self-imposed isolation to avoid this. 
the tracing function can be disabled via a setting or by turning off Bluetooth. One Tory MP asked whether they were aware of colleagues who were doing this said, don't ask, don't tell. And another Tory MP apparently said that the slogan being bandied around the Commons tea room was stay home, protect the holiday, save your marriage. So it's good to know that our governing classes have their priorities in order. Moya, obviously MPs complaining about their summer holidays being in danger, like get me the world's tiniest violin. This kind of self-serving and venal culture amongst MPs aside, there are real problems with the self-isolation system as it stands, right? Yeah, massively. Um, as I think I said elsewhere, send not to know who the track and trace app pings for. It pings for thee. So as you talked about, the problem is that obviously if you're in this in any sort of proximity to somebody who registers as positive test, it then pings. So several things wrong with this. One, lots of hospitality hospitality staff keep getting pinged constantly so businesses like that depended on this summer opening up in the first place and the reason the economy is meant to be getting going um they're all being sent home i know so many people in isolation at the moment because they work in places like hospitality and they're being pinged but if something else that came out of this yesterday which i didn't know was i was on i think politics live with mp tom tundergat on politics live and he said turns out the app is actually, if it pings you to self-isolate, this is advisory. It is not a legal requirement to self-isolate if the COVID-19 app pings you, which, great, fun, turns out you don't have to unless you actually get a positive test, you won't get fined. It's only if an NHS track and tracer contacts you directly. However, what this means is people who've been told to self-isolate because of the app and because the government have not said it's advisory and because, you know, you are going to probably self-isolate out of responsibility, um, have discovered that when they go and try and dip into the employee furlough sick fund, which also was something that was hidden by the government, um, they can't access the money because they've not technically been legally told to self-isolate. And so we're getting a lot of people being forced to self-isolate and not being able to go into work, especially people who work in the spaces where more people are coming in, such as pubs and bars. Um, and cafes, and they are not actually being paid any sick pay, not even the sick pay that's been put aside by the furlough scheme in the first place, um, which is still going until October. And so this all this all adds up. And you talked earlier about universal credit as well. Why are they not topping up universal credit, at least if everyone's got to self-isolate? Well, what they're actually going to do is they're going to cut it by the £20 uplift. Um, so the Tories, they, they're taking and taking. They're not even, there's not even a giveth here. It turns out that this app as well, that they built the entire strategy on, as far as I know, um, wasn't even a legal requirement in the first place. And, you know, I'm all for things not being baked into the law that take away freedoms, etc. But it is bananas to me that that has been going on the entire time and it's not really been brought up. And I looked up some documents about this because I, I couldn't believe what I heard on Politics Live yesterday. And it turns out when Matt Hancock, RIP, launched the app, he literally said, this is not a legal requirement to self-isolate. Um, so once again, it just shows the government messaging and how deliberately they've avoided actually doing anything that would ensure this infrastructure was robust and didn't fall down the moment there was the slightest bit of change in the approach. And now they're trying to go forward and they're going to say, okay, well, we'll, we'll either scrap it all together or, you know, you're going to have to keep doing this. Well, where's the middle ground? Where's the flexibility? It's, it doesn't make sense. I think that's such an important point that you raised, which is the flip side of freedom is reciprocal responsibilities. So when you do have a legally mandated instruction to self-isolate, it means that the government is responsible for making sure that you can survive while doing so. But when you don't have something which is legally binding, well, sure, from the perspective of civil liberties, you would go, oh, that's fantastic. This is guidance only. But ultimately, you know, it makes us all a lot less free to, to have to make these more difficult choices between, well, do I take this advice, uh, which protects the health of the people around me, or, or do I make rent? Uh, do I pay my bills? Can I afford food? Um, so I think that that's something which gets lost in some of these very uh, rigid binary discussions. The justification from the government about why changing the app sensitivity might be a good idea is that as vaccination rates go up, the need for automatic self-isolation goes down because you're more likely to be protected and the people around you are also more likely to be protected. 
Speaking in front of the House of Commons Public Accounts Committee this week, the head of the new health security agency, Dr. Jenny Harris, said, we have a piece of work ongoing at the moment because it's entirely possible to tune the app to ensure that it is appropriate to the risk. When the app came into action, we know it has been hugely successful, but it has been utilized in a world where we did not have vaccinations. So working through what a vaccinated population using the app means is something that we are actively doing at the moment. The level of vaccination in the population changes the level of risk. And so it means that you have to adapt your instructions to self-isolate accordingly. Makes sense to me. But there are still quite big demographic gaps in who's been vaccinated. This is a graph from NHS England, and we can see first and second doses broken down by age. So the dark blue bar is first doses, the lighter blue bar is second doses. And so the most vulnerable age groups are pretty well covered by both first and second doses. You can see about 100% of 75 to 79 year olds and 70 to 74 year olds. And that's because they were the higher priority for bringing down hospitalizations. It was really important to make sure that those older age groups were covered by both the first and second dose. And while first doses have now been administered to most young adults, the gap in second doses for under 40s is still pretty big. And so what we know already about the Delta variant is that one dose is 17% less effective at preventing symptomatic disease than compared to the Alpha variant. Why does this matter? Second doses are being accelerated, and that's really great. But many young people still aren't going to have their second dose mid-August. And that's when the government plans to change uh, its self-isolation instructions for people who've had both of their jabs. And in the hospitality sector, which is precisely the one that we're talking about, which has been so hard hit by these constant pings going off, instructing staff to self-isolate, in pubs, in restaurants, in clubs, 60% of the workforce are aged 16 to 34 years old. We were going to have more transmission because of more mixing, ends to social distancing and return to the office. Against this, we're also going to have potentially less testing if charges for lateral flow tests are introduced. Um, So people are going to be less likely to be taking these quite uh, quick tests, which will then be confirmed by a PCR test. And then you've got the sectors which are reopening, uh, relying very heavily on the labor of people who are most likely to be getting the virus as case numbers increase, which pretty much everybody uh, from Sajid Javid to Sage agrees is going to happen. So what's what's the strategy uh, for dealing with case numbers and self-isolation? It kind of seems to me that Sajid Javid's big idea is to replace test, trace and isolate with, I choose not to see it. Um, which is great if, if, if you're posting memes, but really bad if you're Minister for Health. We can talk about the ideological reasons behind this, but isn't it also just that kind of short-termist, you know, pie-in-the-sky thinking, which we've seen the whole way through this pandemic, where the government just makes its own job harder? It, yeah, to a normal government. Well, I say normal. <laughs> There's no such thing as normal government. But I, this government doesn't care. They make its own rules. That's the thing. They carve out the space they want to go and they move there regardless. That's why the 120, well, 120k people are dead. That's why the death toll for the UK was so large because they make up the idea of where they want to go and then they just move there. Um, and I think with Sajid Javid, it's interesting because before Sajid Javid became health secretary his whole background is business his background is economics that's what he cares about in the early part of the pandemic he was all he was very hawkish he wanted to get out of lockdown you know way back I think in last August so for him as well he's inherited this brief which he wants the pandemic to be over and he wants to focus on health because Boris Johnson has made a lot of promises as well about general, the general NHS, the general health system in the country and what he's going to do and how they're going to revolutionise it, etc. And I think Sajid Javid's eye is fully on that brief. He's had a chance to come back into government and for him, 
COVID is COVID. He sees it as, he now sees it as the flu that we're saying it's going to become. Um, and I think that's so obvious. We talk about this making the job harder. They don't care if it makes it harder because they're just going to do whatever they want to do. They're going, they're going to carve out the way, the way they want to do it and just follow that path. Um, and so far, as we can see, nothing's stopping them. Like no one's challenging them. The opposition is non-existent. Is it making their job harder or is it making our lives harder? That's what I would ask. This is something that we've been discussing a bit on the show, which is whether having Sajid Javid as, you know, minister in the Department of Health and Social Care means that effectively you've got two chancellors in the cabinet. So you've got two people, Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid, who think that their main role is to look after the economy. And that's Sajid Javid bringing his previous brief and also his primary interest in terms of government. And you don't have somebody making the case for health as its own value in the same way. Moving swiftly on. Keir Starmer's poll ratings have not been doing so well recently. YouGov this week found that under his leadership, Labour are 11 points behind the Tories, and that is despite having cancelled Christmas and overseen a disastrous pandemic management strategy. And so the question has been raised. Are, are, are Labour behind because of the party's leader or because of how people view the party itself? This poll from Ipsos Mori recently found that Keir Starmer's net favourability rating as an individual is still worse than Boris Johnson's. So there's something personal here. It's not just the party. Uh, Keir Starmer's favourability ratings is worse than Johnson's. And that same poll found that Starmer is viewed less favourably than the Labour Party. Basically, what this does is, is it just blows apart the myth of the bad Labour brand, right? So, yes, there was obviously a lot of hurt, pain and bad press after the 2019 defeat. But Keir Starmer, rather than stymieing it or being able to reverse it, has actually worsened that trend. There is something very personal that people don't like about Keir Starmer. Why is this the case? Regular viewers of our show will know that we have discussed many times ad nauseum why Starmer's leadership may be lacking. But viewers of BBC's Politics Live this week were, for once, given an insight. And that's because one Miss Moya Lothian McLean made an appearance. Let's take a look. Keir Starmer is someone who, see, and we talked about this earlier when we were talking about the opposition, there doesn't seem to be any opposing in a substantial form. And also, we don't know what he stands for yet. Obviously, they've argued, Labour have argued, it's hard to make policy in a pandemic. Well, the, the way that they've opposed the government or not opposed the government throughout when there's been multiple occasions, um, I think is very telling itself. And I think Keir Starmer has failed to carve out who he is, what he stands for, and any sort of fight or fire that he promised. He has also not unified the party in the way that he promised to and on the mandate he was elected on in the first place. Um, and I think the celebrations around Batley and Spen, the fact that the margin was only 323 votes is nothing to celebrate at all. Um, and what the damage that was done to Muslim voters during that election, I think there's been a drop of about 11% in support by, according to, I think, the Labour Muslim Network from the Muslim demographic. Um, it's just, it just keeps going onwards. You learned yesterday that Trevor Phillips had been quietly reinstated the party after his suspension, um, under investigation for Islamophobia. And, you know, that news hadn't been released. So there, there's rising concerns about Keir Starmer's leadership and what he says versus what he actually does, which is not much. Right. Margaret, would you like to stand up for Keir Starmer? I think this is fantasy politics, frankly, and an eminently predictable. There's a little package of criticisms um, about Keir that have been coming from a particular sector in the party, and it's just not in the real world. I mean, to, to talk about the Batley and Spen by-election without talking about the absolutely poisonous impact of the campaign that George Galloway ran, and to see people who consider themselves to be on the left whether I would consider them to be or not is another matter. Um, defend, defending, associating themselves with George Galloway is profoundly shocking because his whole campaign was absolutely poisonous. Margaret Beckett must want a call-up to be England's new centre-back because that is one hell of a deflection. Moya, you, you were asked to explain your view of Keir Starmer, and you did. And you cited things with stats. You, you know, presented it as, I think, quite a coherent critique. And then Margaret Beckett is asking you why you're not talking about George Galloway. Was that, was that weird? 
It was very strange. I mean, I think we're all quite used to, if we exist on this side of the um, left, being told that our concerns are not actually legitimate and, you know, sit down, the grown-ups are talking. A lot of people after I said that, um, a lot of people after I said that called me like spoiled and smug and said that I was had an attitude um, for speaking like that um, because I got quite I think I got quite heated and quite angry because it's it's one thing to engage in discussion with somebody and when I watched that back I was like yeah I made all these like I put all these points to her um, and she's speaking on behalf of this party and she didn't pick up on any of them especially I think most glaring was the, like the omission of talking about the Islamophobia which is such a huge part of the Batley and Spen by-election and taking Trevor Phillips into it into account with that and from the reactions I got on some people on social media which we of course we shouldn't like put our store by them but it was interesting reading that representation of myself as like this smug child who said nothing of use and then looking at that clip where I was just very I, I didn't even I was like oh I didn't realize I was that calm and just passionate <laughs> like composed about it and actually put forward all these points because when you're in the moment you don't you're, you're doing it you're not thinking about it as much and then holy internalized yeah. misogyny batman yeah um, like wow but it was it was just interesting to see that Margaret Beckett's deflection was so obvious that even Politics Live host Joe Coburn pushed her on the substance of your criticisms. His whole campaign was absolutely poisonous. All right. Well, he's not he's he's not here. But if we look at the broader uh, issues that Moya raised, Margaret. Fantasy politics. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't mention George Galloway and I've not supported George Galloway. Um, So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why why the inference was that I would support George Galloway in any shape or form. Um, and I think the fantasy politics you're talking about is a world that you exist in, clearly, because on the ground, these issues keep coming up for Keir Starmer again and again. There was a poll, I think, by, it was by Johnson & Johnson, which looked at um, the Red Wall voters. And the number one reason Red Wall voters said that they were moving away from the party long after the former leader had left was Keir Starmer. So I think maybe you should get back in the real world. Margaret? Yeah, I mean, I really do. I, I maintain my point of view um, that this is fantasy politics. It ignores the fact. It, it kind of it goes through a, a, an eminently predictable, an, an identical yes, set of criticisms of Keir. Um, and, you know, um, they, they're just, it's just living in another world. You haven't refuted any of these criticisms. You've, you've pointed out the criticisms, which they are. So thank you for that. But you haven't actually refuted them. What does Keir Starmer stand for? But once more, you've got criticisms being brought up by you, which are very specific, and they're deflected by Labour MP Margaret Beckett, which I suppose it's her job. She's got to go on TV and defend the leadership. But there's still no substantive meeting of Moya's point. And then she ends up having to firmly ask again. So let's see if we get a real answer. Third time lucky. What does Keir Starmer stand for? We know very clearly what Keir stands for. And one of the things that I think summarises it best is a phrase that I've heard him use more than once, which is he wants to make this the best country to grow up in and the best country to grow old in. And he's talked about about jobs, about homes, about problems in education, about skills, about a whole range of things. And because of the pandemic, it hasn't cut through. I'll give you, if you want a comparison, I'll give you a comparison that's very germane to today. In my opinion, Keir Starmer is our Gareth Southgate. He's an oh, adult. Christ. He's grown up. He's grown up. He's living in the real world. He's getting a whole lot of, of, of often uh, insults. He's a whole lot of advice, which is utterly superfluous and irrelevant. And he's carrying on on a steady course because that's what he has to do. I'll give because you a comparison. Keir Starmer's Unite Emery. <laughs> I mean, look, there are plenty of reasons why Keir Starmer isn't Gareth Southgate. Because uh, one, Gather- Gareth Southgate wins things. He oh wins things. <laughs> I was so annoyed that I called him Unai Emery because they're like, he just he wins the Europa League all the time. I was clearly talking about his tenure at Arsenal. They're like, yeah, yeah but I mean, I just think like, put some respect on Sevilla <sighs> FC's name, you know? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> um, oh God. Uh, yeah, next time, don't worry. I'll call him Roy Hodgson as everyone asked me to. Um, I feel, I felt, God, I felt... I got so heated in that. I really feel slightly bad for Margaret Becker, even though she said absolutely nothing of use to me. But for me, what this does is it signals just how empty this political project is. Because obviously Keir Starmer wants Britain to be the best place to be born and the best place to grow old. But 
Boris Johnson wants that. Dominic Cummings wants that. Nigel Farage wants that. Joe Swinson wanted that. Every single person in politics wants that. It's how you get there. So are you going to do that by having, I don't know, um, a fully socialized elderly care system? Are you going to do that by having, uh, you know, a university tuition being paid for through an increase in corporation tax? Are you going to have Britain being the best place to grow up because, I don't know, you integrate the private school system into the state sector? Do you want to pursue academization or free schools? These are all different paths to the same thing that everybody says they want. It is completely devoid of content. And I think that that's why there was some recognition of that somewhere in Margaret Beckett's brain. And so she had to go, well, why don't I just pin this to something that feels contemporary. And it's like, well, there are two things that everybody likes. There's Cardi B or there's Gareth Southgate. And so it's going to have to be Gareth Southgate out of the two. But again, you know, Southgate is more than just a sort of empty signifier for a set of unifying values. He actually does shit. What does Keir Starmer do successfully? I'll wait. Um, but look, clearly uh, Gareth ne uh, Gary Neville didn't, Agree with Margaret Beckett either after England's semi-final victory against Denmark. Here's what he had to say about the state of political leadership in this country. So the standards of leaders in this country in the last couple of years has been poor. And looking at that man there, that's everything a leader should be. Respectful, humble, tell the truth, genuine. He's fantastic, Gareth Southgate. He really is unbelievable and done a great job. I mean, look, I think that that's more of an indirect send at Boris Johnson, emphasizing uh, the honesty and the humbleness. Um, these are all values which uh, Southgate embodies and Boris Johnson definitely doesn't. But thinking about that as a critique of political leadership in this country, it's not as if Gary Neville went, oh, and the exception to this is Keir Starmer. I mean, look, I don't know what he thinks about Keir Starmer, but I think that it's safe to say he's certainly not been either as effective a figure, an impactful a figure, or unifying a figure uh, as uh, Gareth Southgate, who really, in terms of favorability ratings, is just absolutely flying away. So from this opinion poll, which was released today, Gareth Southgate has got better favorability ratings than Winston Churchill. Like, this is in our World War II-obsessed country. Southgate, more popular than Churchill. What do you think it is about him other than the wins, which people find so appealing? Or is it just the wins? I think there's a couple of factors for a start. I think I think one of the things that probably tells you the most is uh, the piece that he wrote or that he um, said and was transcribed in the Players' Tribune, which is, uh, a, a, it was set by Derek Jeter, I think. And it's it's a it's a magazine that kind of puts the words of sportsmen into or sports people into their like their, into their own words and lets them talk directly to the public about their stories. And he did a piece called Dear England, where he talked about the team and their the pride they carried. And you know, he talked about his his definition of Englishness, um, which he said was very like patriotic and based in sort of like a military, his family had been in a military background, which obviously is going to appeal to a certain section of society. But then he also talked about the players. And how they had different experiences of what it meant to be English and the the pressures they've been put under and sort of the the things that they'd see, the abuse they've suffered, basically, from a country that often rejects them or um, throws dirt at them, throws just shit at them whenever they are seen to mess up or whenever they're just not seen as English enough or British enough. Um, and he did this. It was actually, I'm not really one for, you know, the old... The old, uh, my grandfather's in the military, so this means English. But the way that he sort of talked about his his views had been had evolved and changed, and what pride meant, and how what it meant for him to like stand up for the values of, of racial equality and defend these players and defend these people, and how they really represented what he wanted to the sort of idea of England to be. And even though I I don't buy into the concept of England as a positive thing, I think it does tell us a lot about why Gareth Southgate is probably liked by so many people because he's someone who seems quite empathetic and he seems like he's able to connect with these different demographics and I think that's why people have taken to him he said that you know he could have stayed out of um 
making any sort of political statements but the duty of any anyone who's in a leadership position he knows people are going to look to him for a steer on that so he said well this is the stand we're making and this is what we're going to say and um basically treat my players with respect or fuck off <laughs> so that's he seems like a, he seems a, he's very unassuming but he's a nice he seems like just a nice man that's the thing and i think there's a bit of a sincerity to him and mm. as part of irony left as we might call it that is something that even to us can be quite alien at times and quite jarring but I think it's sometimes we need to be in sincerity after the year that we've had and I'm not one to go full football fan because I know it would be very disingenuous given my everything I say about the empire and whatever but when there is a unity in sort of communal joy and I think that's something that's very important right now it's the idea of communal joy and he's been the face of that and the players have been the face of that and yeah sure the Daily Express can put Harry Kane on every single front page and forget who Raheem Sterling is but we know who he is and that's what's important I think I think someone said it the other day and I, I'd said a version of this which is you know fuck Boris Johnson's England but Raheem Sterling's England mm. that's all right I kind of get behind that for now so that's why I think Gareth Southgate probably appeals so much I mean that's definitely something that I want to discuss a bit more is the way in which this English team do embody these quite huge cultural changes moving on to our final story so look, like most people, I'm going to be spending this Sunday completely off my face, hanging out with my friends, watching the England final and just hoping and praying that Sterling does whatever it takes in the penalty box to deliver us the win. Lee Anderson, the Conservative MP for Ashfield, joined the likes of Lawrence Fox in the early stages of the tournament in vowing to boycott England matches for as long as the players take the knee in a stand against racist discrimination. And look, nobody could blame him if he wanted to change his mind after the knockout stages or, you know, since we made it through to the final, it's a real once in a lifetime opportunity, but it looks like Anderson is sticking to his guns. I took a decision, and not just football, I said any, any sporting event where the competitors or players before the event take the knee, well, I couldn't support, I couldn't support it because I see it as a divisive, uh, symbol. Um, I see it associated with Black Lives Matter. Whether the players think that or not, that's up to them. I've got no beef with the players really at all. Um, I think they're being, you know, probably poorly advised. But you know, I would say to people that you know, if if taking the knee is such a symbol of uh, fighting racism in sport or, or, or in society, then why weren't the England team doing this two years ago? Now, if they would have been doing this two years ago, before Black Lives Matter come to the fore then I would, I would be the first person to be taking the knee with them. But like I say, it, uh, it, it just, it just uh, it grates a little bit with me. No, I made that decision a few weeks back. I'm sticking to it. And it's interesting, I think the Olympics have already said that um, there'd be no political symbols at the Olympic Games this year. Um, so, I mean, so that's, I mean, if it's good enough for, the, good enough for them, at the Olympics where the whole world will be watching in, and then I can stick to my principles and say, you know what, I don't agree with it. I'm a little bit upset. I can't watch my team play because I think they want to win. I think they're a brilliant team and fair play to them. And I will be cheering them on. I'll be checking my phone for updates and scores and stuff like that. No doubt plenty of people on social media who have been um, attacking me over the past week will be tagging me in texts. That's fine. That's fine. If they want to keep me updated, if we're winning, that's absolutely brilliant. And I wish them all the best. That was Lee Anderson speaking to LBC there. He also said that he believes England will win. And on Sunday, he will spend his day unpacking boxes because he's just moved house. It's just so silly. It's just so silly. I can't even like get upset about it. Here is a fully grown man spiting himself, boycotting the first time England has made it into an international final since 1966 because he made a really stupid vow at the beginning of the tournament when he probably thought England wasn't going to do all that well. And you listen to his justification for it, like, well, you know, if they'd done this two years ago before BLM, then I would be right there taking the knee with them. Well, look, when Colin Kaepernick was taking the knee under the Obama administration, he was blacklisted, he was hounded, he was you know, really vociferously criticized by the American press. And I don't remember any statements of solidarity from Lee Anderson. There was also this matter of him saying that the players had been poorly advised as if there's a whole 
kind of shadowy network of woke PR advisors saying like you really have to take the knee rather than the fact that these are, you know, young guys who like most of their dem demographic are in favor of the Black Lives Matter cause. And lots of them are, of course, black themselves. So they have an interest in representing this cause because it feels very, very personal. So yes, it's completely uh, risable. It's silly. It's stupid. But it is a little bit more honest, at least, than what the likes of Pretty Patel and Boris Johnson have been getting up to. Home Secretary Pretty Patel tweeted out after the England win, just brilliant. Well done, three lions. Football's coming home. And I'm sure she would be right there with gunboats in the channel if it does indeed decide to go home. But this is the same Home Secretary who said that fans could boo players taking the knee. So from my perspective, one, I think that you cannot say support the team when you didn't support the players. This is a team of human beings who banded together to make a gesture in support of anti-racism and you said that they could be booed. So don't start jumping on the bandwagon now that they're doing really well. But I think what this in quite a funny way indicates is that one of the least contentious symbols of patriotism, right, the English national football team, is actually really difficult for the right to come to terms with. Because yes, on the one hand, it is still a nationalist symbol, a relatively non-toxic one, a relatively inclusive one, but still a nationalist symbol. But also at the same time, like I said, you've got these young guys who, like most of their peers, are fairly progressive and inclusive. And so it seems that uh, despite the very best efforts of some on the right, there is just not the appetite uh, amongst the public to condemn the lads or the cause that they stand for. So let's just have a little look at what happened when GB News' Dan Wooten tried to cajole big Sam Allardyce into disavowing taking the knee. Rebecca on GB Views asks, what do you think about England players taking the knee? Well, this is obviously something that's, got, that's gone along uh, for, for many, uh, many, many months now. And I think we continue to do that in support of... Um, Black Lives Matter. And I think that that is very, very important that we, irrespective of what other people think or what other people may do in football, uh, football is trying to make a stand. So look, like I said, I think all of this brouhaha comes from the fact that this is a symbol of how much the country has changed right at the heart of nationalist imagery. So these young guys who are fairly progressive, they are this living, vibrant proof that the culture we see dominating the top of politics is not the culture which is dominating the young. And I think it makes a lot of these right-wing reactionary dinosaurs quite scared that there are these young guys really likable doing well and they're progressive. And what's more is that most of their peers in football, so even the old guard of football, are fairly supportive of this stuff. Um, Moya, what, what what do you think about this in, in terms of the problems the right have with, weirdly, embracing a symbol of patriotism? Oh, it's hilarious. Um, I did actually just want to point something out because I made this mistake as well. Um, in 2009, England's women's team did reach the final, I think, of the World Cup. So it's not been as long as we think it has. I made this mistake too. Well, as, so we know, as we know, as we know, men props. are slow. Men are slow. Men are so very slow. And me, the men up. have taken 55 years to get here. Uh, <laughs> as you said at the start, I think it's hilarious. I think the thing is, we should not treat this seriously because these are unserious people. And the problem that I think we've had in the past and maybe the mistake that we've made is trying to meet them on a serious level and talk to them and reason with these people who want to start this culture instead of saying, yes. I don't like instead of saying, OK, go, don't go, don't go to the game. Then if you don't want to, I don't care. We're going to go do this anyway. Or saying, no, taking the knee is fine. If they want to do it, let them take the knee. Um, we shouldn't try and meet them and reason with them and have these big debates. We should just say, OK, do your own fucking thing then. I don't care. We're going to we're going to watch this game. And if we win, it's going to be the biggest party <laughs> that we've seen for ages. And it's going to be fantastic. And whether you support football or not, it's something to get r rallied around. And I think it says so much about 
the right who are trying to start this culture war and have been mired in it that at this point of what I called the communal joy earlier um, they just cannot take part and that is that's what we talk about it's the heart of politics it's like ultimately what we're fighting for is the light we fight for something that is good we fight for everyone to have a bit of joy you know give them the bread but also give them the roses and the right they feed on hate and they feed on fear and they're very good at it. But this shows us sometimes that bit of joy comes along. We have to hold on to it. We have to run with it. And we just don't have to fucking give in to them. Sorry for swearing so much. No, no, no. But I mean, do you think that you could even say, give us bread, but give us trophies too? Give yeah. us bread, but give us a meaningless piece of um, silverware to go in the cabinet. If Harry Kane gets a trophy, Ash, you know, you know that's a rarity. <laughs> also, if Harry Kane gets a trophy, it's going to be like, oh, you really are too good for us. But, you know, at least you got something which wasn't with Spurs. Um, Moya, thank you so much thank for you. joining me, even if it was to just like slay me in the heart right at the end. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's great. It's fine. I'm just going to log off and, yeah. and cry now. Um, but thank you to everyone for tuning in, your comments and your super chats tonight. Like I said, Michael Walker will be back. I will let him out of the cupboard eventually. He'll be back here Monday at 7 p.m. So make sure you hit subscribe. You don't want to miss him. He'll be all tanned and glowy and gorgeous. You have been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.